But good morning again. What a great group of kids we have with us this morning. What a good group we have with us and those who are joining with us via the internet. Finding Joy in Our Discouragements is the title of this, and we'll be looking in Luke chapter 1, different verses as we go along. But a way of introduction, has anyone ever been to Yellowstone National Park? Just say amen or say, yes, I have real loud. (laughs) I have not been to Yellowstone, but from the pictures and the articles I've read of Yellowstone, it seems like it would be an amazing place, a beautiful place to go see. And it's no wonder why it was the first national park established in the world. In 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant signed the act that set aside Yellowstone as a protected treasure. The wildlife in that park is part of our American consciousness. The bison, the bears, wolves, eagles, elk, and all sorts of similar creatures, smaller creatures. The mountains, of course, are majestic. So are the waterfalls and the rivers. But if there's one thing Yellowstone is known for that stands out among everything else, it has to be the geysers. There is so much germal excuse me, geothermal activity there, it's amazing. The park is basically sitting on a top of a huge supervolcano. And brewing beneath the surface, all over the park, this heat is brewing and works its way up through the surface, forcing its way through the earth. Now, there are many different geysers throughout the park. Water is usually involved, but the most famous geyser, and I'm sure all of you have heard of it, is Old Faithful. Probably the most famous geyser in the park and maybe the world. It shoots and spurts huge fountains of water and steam up to 180 feet. And I like that picture because you can see the people standing there. You can see how high it's going. And you have to stand a good place off because that stuff will burn you. It goes off about 20 times a day and doesn't go off as much as it used to. However, the park rangers and the scientists are able to predict the times each day when it'll erupt, hence the name Old Faithful. They can actually tell you at what times the geyser will erupt. Now there's other well-known geysers, the Grand Prismatic Geyser. It's the largest spring in the United States. Look at the kaleidoscope of colors in that picture. It's certainly breathtaking. There are also countless small pools and puddles that bubble, and they will occasionally shoot spouts of superheated water. Then there's muddy geysers called mud pots. They're somewhere between liquid and solid, and the heat rises up, and the bubbles will burst, uh, kind of like watching oatmeal simmer on a stove. You know, as it starts to bubble slowly, and the bubble, I hope you don't turn up too high, it's going all over the place, but that slow simmer, you know, that's basically what they are. And now you're thinking, well, Tim, that's great talking about Yellowstone National Park and geysers and all that, but what in the world does that have to do with our text? I'm glad you asked. Because geysers remind me of joy. Because similar to geysers, joy bubbles and overflows. It has to find its way out in some way or another. Sometimes it may be a big eruption like Old Faithful. Other times it may be slow, and kind of burble up to the top. 
it might be even a little muddy or murky or slower to find its way out. But no matter what's influencing it or surrounding it, joy has its source deep within. Don't miss that. Joy has its source deep within. And because of that, listen to me, because of that, we can experience joy no matter what discouragement we may be going through. And that leads us to Elizabeth and Mary, mother's joy. Now, there's a lot of joy around the biblical Christmas story, especially early on. But that joy is not separate from pain and disappointment. Much of this joy is birthed out of disappointment and grief. And we're going to explore this more as we look at the stories and experiences of Elizabeth and Mary. Now, Luke's narrative starts before Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. It actually goes back to Elizabeth and her husband, Zacharias. Let's look in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and see who Zacharias and Elizabeth are. Luke 1, chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the vision of Abba, and his and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Listen to how he describes them. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now that short paragraph would have spoke volumes to Luke's original audience. We have Herod, who was keeping the Jews under Roman law. And Herod was also half Jewish. A lot of bartering going back and forth. In fact, if you go back and do a study, as I said last week about Herod and that whole family, they were just paranoid about losing power. He had all these palaces built where he could re, re, uh, retreat to. So we have him. And I want you to understand, these are very difficult times for the Jewish people. Very hard times. And this is where we meet Zacharias and Elizabeth. Notice in the text, they tell us that they're both from priestly lineage. And the day of religious corruption and power plays by both the Pharisees and Sadducees, these two, these two stick out with a stark contrast. They're described as righteous, blameless, and faithful. And that is especially important in light of what Luke tells us next. Look what it says. They were righteous and blameless, but they had no children. Now, back in those days, if you didn't have a child or able to conceive a child, the question would be, what have you done wrong? How has God cursed you? What sin have you done? Even today, sometimes, that carries like a little stigma. Not as much as back in that culture. But they're both advanced in age, and they were upright. The text is very clear to tell us that they're righteous. That they did nothing wrong, and yet they could not have a child. Now, as that chapter rolls on, all that changes suddenly and miraculously when the archangel Gabriel shows up. He tells Zacharias that his wife is going to have a son who's going to be a very powerful prophet, who will prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Now, Zacharias is so overwhelmed by the news, he can hardly believe it. 
So when he questions the angel, this is my paraphrase, the angel basically tells him, here's your sign, Zacharias, you won't be able to talk until he's, until he's born. Now guys, put yourself in the shoes of Zacharias. Now you can't speak. How in the world are you going to communicate to people what had just happened? By sign language or drawing it out? Imagine going from able to speak to nothing. Now with Elizabeth hears the news, she believes a little quicker. And when she becomes pregnant, she says in verse 25, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now there's an odd note right before that verse that tells us that she went in seclusion for the first five months of her pregnancy. Maybe this had something to do with the disgrace that she mentions there in verse 25. For her, the inability to have children would have been a lifelong source of pain, sorrow, and shame. Like I said earlier, this is a big deal in that culture. The grapes' hopes of having a child would have eventually faded through the years. I imagine she questions herself. Perhaps they asked questions of other women. They, in turn, probably questioned her unfairly, casting suspicion or unfounded blame on her. Perhaps there were pregnancies that happened from time to time, but they ended in miscarriages to dash the hopes of being, being able to have a child with grief and loss. Elizabeth's self-worth probably sunk as the years passed. At some point, she and everyone around her would have declared that she was barren and branded her with this lifelong stigma. Maybe perhaps that's why she stayed in seclusion for the first five months, staying to herself, to let her hope blossom and to joy personally, to to ensure that this pregnancy was indeed going to last. Now later, we're told, following in Luke chapter 1, When Elizabeth is six months pregnant, Gabriel makes another appearance on earth. Now, he's delivering the most miraculous pregnancy announcement of all of human history. And Mary receives the news gracefully and willingly. But at some point, in back of her mind, she must have known the challenges and the disgrace that would start to begin. The scorn and the shame she would face along with her family and her fiancé as well. It would be tremendous when it was obvious that she was pregnant and had not consummated her marriage with Joseph yet. Now, they were engaged at this point. But in that culture, in that time, once they became engaged, they were married for all intents and purposes. Usually, the male would go back and prepare a place for him and his wife onto his father's house, and he would come get there. And she would go with him, and they would consummate the marriage. There would be a week-long celebration. Now, guys, put yourself in Joseph's shoes, because we're told Joseph doesn't believe this at first. Kind of like, hey, time out. Okay, Mary, I know you haven't been with me. Now you say you're pregnant by the Lord. And ladies, put yourself in Mary's place. How are you going to convince anyone that you are now pregnant, not by your husband, but by the Lord? Now, Joseph couldn't believe it at first. Matthew tells us he planned to break it off quietly to to divorce her. But then he has an angel visit him. But put all this together. Here we have the birth of our Savior, but yet 
There's circumstances around all this, these people. They're living in some very hard and difficult times and difficult situations. Mary's journey would not be an easy one. Maybe that's why in verse 39 and 40 we are told that Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. See, Elizabeth was her cousin. And Gabriel had told Mary about Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy. And she must have thought, if anyone understand what I'm going through, it would be Elizabeth. And this is the scene where joy erupts. Against the backdrop of discouragement, grief, and shame, in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, look with me. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice. By the way, in Greek, that's the word mega. You know what mega is, right? We always like to get our super size, mega size, that's where that word comes from. For a loud voice, and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. What a relief that must have been to Mary. That she would have to to explain herself. She didn't have to worry anymore about being misunderstood. All she had to do was to show up and say hello and everything was understood. Even the developing baby and Elizabeth leaped within her womb for joy. And this was just the affirmation and the encouragement Mary needed. Her joy came bursting forth as well as she thanked and praised God. Look in verse 45. Her response. And Mary, excuse me, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in my in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good news and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. And he's, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. It's a celebration, a connection in the midst of miraculous events. It's also a story of two expected mothers sharing a deep understanding and affirmation that foster the flow of joy. That joy that no matter what was going to happen, what has happened, what's going to happen, it would not shake the joy of what's going on. I think a lot of times we read this event and we miss the point that the circumstances in which this all takes place is not the best. Remember, these are human beings like we are. They have fears, they have feelings, they have aspirations and anxieties, just like you and I. I mean, Mary was about 14. 
Put yourself in her shoes. Guys, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. The amount of shame and scorn by that community, it would spread like wildfire. How about Elizabeth? It tells us they were well advanced in years. And now you're telling me they're going to have a child? What I want you to do is just take a moment and look at the context in which this is recorded. And look how these two mothers came together and as coming together, talking to one another, what has happened, it resulted in a joy. And there's a lot that we can learn about joy in this passage. And I can tell by looks on your faces, you're so full of joy, you're about to burst. First of all, this is, let me just move on. It's okay to be joyful and happy. Now, for some of you, that's a no-brainer. That's like a, a no-duh kind of statement. For others, this is a subversive kind of statement that might make you feel a little uncomfortable when you think about it. A lot of that depends on where you fall uh, based on your personal past and your spiritual history. Where you are on that spectrum of joy depends on those two. Now, we're already, we have all heard or probably heard joy described in contrast to happiness, such as happiness is fleeting and temporary where joy is deeper and more fulfilling. And in Christian circles, we've heard this. Happiness is more secular and less valuable, valuable or fulfilling, where joy is more spiritual and more important or fulfilling. And here's the point I'm going to make. In the Bible, in the Hebrew and the Greek, there's no distinction. The words that are used for joy and happiness can be used interchangeably and are throughout the text in Hebrew and in Greek. They're essentially different words for the same thing. Now, they may have slightly different nuances, like many synonyms do. However, those are often cultural and shifting. They may be translated different ways in our English translations. But what I said, the Hebrew and the Greek terms used to describe joy and happiness are essentially interchangeable. Now, with that said, there is great joy in the Christmas season. It's good to embrace and celebrate that joy. Now, it's difficult to find that balance in our lives, to savor and experience joy. Those who find yourselves driven by obligation, busyness, and guilt in this season, I want you to know it's okay to stop and say no, to pause and embrace that part of the season that brings you personal happiness. Those of you who find Christmas to be a painful, difficult season, To those of you who are hurting or grieving personally or feeling discouraged by this year 2020, to those of you who are happy to revel in this season, it's okay to feel and to embrace joy. God sees you no matter where you are on that spectrum of happiness. Our longing for happiness and joy is a desire that God placed within us as a reflection of his own joyful nature. The most important part of joy and happiness is the source of the joy and happiness. That's the biggest point I want you to grasp this morning. Joy and happiness, we base it on our circumstances or our job, whatever is going around us, it will come crashing down. I'm not talking about joy, you're smiling all the time, but that security 
maybe even peace as we understand it, will not be shaken because the source of our joy and happiness is found in Christ. So it's okay to be, ha- it's okay to be joyful and happy. And I know it seems like the world is falling apart right now. I understand what's happening in our country, but we as believers and the King of kings and Lord of lords should have no reason to hang our head down. Tim, how can you be happy and joyous in this occasion? Because it reminds me when the world was in chaos and darkness once before, Jesus sent his light into the world, walked among us, taught us, performed miracles, died for us, and rose on the third day, now sits at the right hand of the Father. And guess what? Just as it was prophesied way back before it happened, Jesus says, I'm coming again. Jesus himself said, I don't know the day and the hour. The angels don't know the day and the hour. Only the Father knows. And just like it, people thought, well, where's his second coming? He is coming again. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know we're a day closer to it. So take time out. Don't get so wrapped up in the gifts and the lights and the politics. Just take time out and remember, rediscover that joy. Maybe some of us have to go back and rediscover that joy when we first gave our lives to Christ. And we felt that whole weight, that whole rock of bricks of guilt and shame just lift off our shoulders and we were set free. We're no longer slaves. We became children of God. And like we said in Sunday school, not only children, sons and daughters, but joint heirs with Christ. Well, it leads us to our second point. Joy is our strength. And we see that in the narrative we just read. The joy of Elizabeth and Mary as they talked to one another, gave them the strength to go on and to do what God's called them to do. There's another great example of this found in the Old Testament in the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah got permission from King Artaxerxes to return from exile in Babylon and rebuild Jerusalem, starting with its walls. Now, this process was not just going back to a physical city. It was really a spiritual reawakening for the people. And chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah, he brings all the people together. He brings out the law of Moses, and they begin to read it. He calls for the people to remember and return to the relationship with God. And as Nehemiah is doing this, people begin to weep. Maybe there are some tears of joy for some of the people who remember God's words from years past. But most people weep in that moment from sadness as they recognize their own guilt and how far they have drifted from God. Now, here's the beauty in that. Imagine calling together all these people and reading the law. It would be like me standing up reading Deuteronomy from beginning to end. And as he did that, people began to weep. And in the middle of this, in verse 10, listen to the beauty in the midst of the scene. Then he, Nehemiah, said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah is telling them to celebrate and enjoy it. Well, why did he say that? Because this is a time for happiness, that God has brought us back and restoring our city and restoring our hearts. 
Because our source and strength is the very joy of the Lord. And that's what fuels us and sustains us. So we can be happy that God is restoring us. I'm trying to think. When I experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it's not a pleasant thing. And it sounds, in human terms, almost contradiction, what I'm going to say. It also brings me joy because God is dealing with me as his child to correct me, to guide me back. No different than do with your child. I mean, if my daughter had climbed up on the stove and put her hand on it when it was on, would I reason with her? I would probably just go, boom, and hit her hand. God does that with us sometimes. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't do that. He would not care to do so. But he sees you as his child. You are his child. And he's correcting us in a loving way. Our true source of happiness, joy, and fulfillment comes from Christ. And Christmas is the season of joy because Messiah, the Messiah, Jesus, has brought joy into the world and provided us the way of ultimate fulfillment in life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you, are great, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, this is not suggesting that they're, uh, don't worry, be happy type of attitude, put on a plastic smile and fake it. Sometimes this joy is a rushing fountain erupting from your spirit. Sometimes it will be thick, slow to burble to the surface. But let me tell you, wherever you may find yourself today, let me encourage you that the joy of the Lord can be felt no matter what you're facing. And that leads us to our final point. We can choose joy. It's interesting, as you look at Scripture, there's a lot of uses of the word rejoice. It's not a word that we use very often anymore, and perhaps we should. Because rejoice is the verb form of joy. It's the action of feeling or expressing joy and delight. If you look more closely at that word, there's a prefix, R-E, re, rejoice. Now think back to grammar school or think of the English language. There's another word that uses that prefix, re. Remember. To remember something is to call back, to go back once again or return to so To rejoice is to go back and return to joy. It is a choice and action we can take to return to joy. It's a return to our source of joy, which is really a return back to Jesus. This is the only way we can find true delight and satisfaction. This process is the same for us all, whether whether if we're feeling happy and joyful in the season or not. Whether we're buried in discouragement or everything is going our way. Because here's the point, dear beloved. No one has an unending supply of feel-good happiness all the time. This doesn't happen. No matter how optimistic or positive your natural disposition is, sooner or later you're going to have one of those days, one of those weeks, one of those months, or perhaps, hello, one of those years, And the truth is, we have those more often than we like to think. But that's where the read comes in. We must regularly and daily 
constantly return to Jesus, who is our source of joy. Hence why corporate worship is important. To sit back and to remember. The Bible repeats itself a lot. A lot of the same principles you find throughout its pages. Pick up the hymnal in front of you. A lot of those hymns say the same thing different ways, but repeating the same eternal truth. How many songs do we have that we sing, almost like we're singing to each other, remember this and remember that? Are you washed in the blood? Asking each other, have you been washed in the blood that cleanses us from all our sin? All these eternal truths that we believe as Christians to remember. That's why rejoicing is our process of refueling the tank, restoring our strength and renewing our spirits because it's reconnecting us to our Savior. And it's in this process that James' words in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, make sense. Listen to what James says. Now, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, that's not something we want to hear when we're hurting. Joy can feel so far away when we are grieving or depressed or afraid, as our pain and our problems loom above. But James is not necessarily necessarily saying, be happy about our trials and problems. Or he's saying we can find joy in them when we keep perspective of the bigger picture. What is the bigger picture? The picture, picture, the bigger picture that states that God is working in every situation for our own good. See the bigger picture. See what God is doing. You know, a lot of people get depressed after Christmas. Do you know why? So much hype. So much hype behind the presents and lights and celebration. And then Christmas comes and they open up all the gifts and you're like, okay, now it's over. I relate it to buying a new car. You ever bought a new car? Nothing like that new car smell, right? Oh man, I love this car. But that soon fades away when that first payment hits. And the second payment and the third payment. And it's great that we have a season where we take really time out to look at what the Bible tells us about the birth of our Savior. But really, that should be something we do every day. Christmas should be every day of our lives. Because Christmas doesn't stop after we take down the tree and put up the presents. It's still there. And no matter what is going on in our world today, let me encourage you, the best is yet to come. We have no idea can't even fathom what it's like when he comes again. Oh, we have the book of Revelation. You know why I think that book is so hard to understand? You have John. We're separated from time and culture from the apostle John, but he's trying to describe something that's really indescribable. If I had been there, I probably would say like this. How do I? Now, he had the Holy Spirit helping them and guiding him what to say. We have no idea. And I'm not saying just walk out of here with a don't worry, be happy attitude. Remember what the source of all this is. Don't lose sight of that. 
And it's so easy to do. I do it myself. And when things get you down, I remember an old hymn that I'm just a pilgrim. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And I would encourage us, each of us, to rediscover Christmas this year by embracing the joy, no matter what we may be going through personally. Let us remember each day the source of our joy. Let us seek happiness, not in the seasonal trappings or traditions that surround us, but in returning constantly to our source of joy. Let us choose to continue the process, to continue the process of rejoicing, despite the pain and challenges we are facing. Let us see the good news of the angels that will bring joy to all of us. The Savior has been born, our Messiah, our Lord. And he will carry us through and complete his work in us no matter what. That is good news. That's the reason we can have joy. Now we come to the part we call the invitation. Because that's exactly what it is. God is inviting you to respond. Not to me. Not to Forestburg Baptist Church. But to him. Perhaps you've never given your life to him. You never surrendered your life to him, never came to him and said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me because I'm broken your law. Let me tell you, you keep chasing what the world has to offer, you'll never find it. It's kind of like that carrot in front of the mule. It'll always be there. You'll jump through so many hoops, and you'll never get there. All the world will tempt you with that and say, have a good time, but as soon as you mess up, and you're in the gutter, and you're falling, they'll laugh at you and kick you to the side. I've seen it happen. Come to the one who can give you true joy. Maybe you've done that. What's keeping you back? I know it's been a difficult year for all of us in so many different ways. Maybe he's calling you just in this moment to come back to him, to remind you of the joy of your salvation. That you are a son or daughter of God. That you're no longer a slave to sin. You've been set free. This world is in desperate need of hearing about Christ. We are so busy chasing so many things. New and improved this and new and improved that. Buy this, buy that. Buy this, buy that. Elect this person. Don't elect this person. None of that should affect my joy because my joy needs to be squarely upon who Christ is. Or maybe he's calling you to join us here, part of the body known as Forestburg Baptist Church, or perhaps to simply go across the way and pray with somebody. Whatever God's calling you to do, I pray that you do that now. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. Don't let the world dictate how you feel, what's important to you. Stand on the truth of God's word and his son Jesus, and I promise you, he will never let you down. Doesn't mean you will go around laughing and giggling all the time. I'll end with this. I don't say this for self-sympathy, but I recently lost my mama. And my 
wife told me, why don't you take a day off and don't preach? She passed away on a Wednesday, and I came back that following Sunday and preached. I said, baby, I can't do that. She said, why? Because this is my rock. This is where I join my, I, I get my joy and my strength is from studying and preparing and preaching God's word. How can I take a, a day off from something like that? Is that what it is to you? Are you still waiting for that perfect Christmas gift that every year they promise but never come through with? Think about that. This makes the perfect Christmas gift. Only $19.95 plus shipping and handling. Some of the most cheesiest, God-forsaken gifts everyone ever made. That's just my opinion. But I'm telling you, you have the opportunity to receive the greatest gift that God will remember you and me in part of his plan. But it's up to you. It's a gift. And you have to receive that gift, and that's up to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together. Father, I pray that you would knock down the walls and things that may be stopping us from truly embracing the joy of the season. That no matter what happens, you have us securely in your hands. That's the source of our joy and happiness, is our standing because of what Christ has done for each and every one of us. Father, I pray for those who are hurting, those who are grieving during this time. Father, comfort them as only as you can. Reach out your mighty, mighty arms of love and peace and wrap around each one and pull them close to your side. Continue to move and speak to us in this moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.